a reading from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy, busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Well, good morning, church family. It is, uh, it is a great Sunday. It is Super Bowl Sunday. And every Sunday at Windsor Community Church is Super Bowl Sunday. Because the victory has been won. Jesus, through his life and death and resurrection, has conquered the power of sin. He has conquered the power of Satan, and he has conquered the power of death. So, happy Super Bowl Sunday. We are in our uh, second Sunday of our sermon series called Words of Delight and Truth, as we are uh, studying through the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, we will go probably a minimum of 15 weeks in this uh, this beautiful paradoxical book, uh, maybe as long as 25 weeks. We'll just we'll just have to see. The last week we looked at the first 11 verses as we uh, introduce the book, and there was a couple of things that we learned that are, it's important to repeat today because it's it's actually foundational as we move forward. And um, and before I get there, um, if you um, are part of this church family, and you're going to be with us through um, the teaching of Ecclesiastes, I would encourage you to go online and listen to last week's sermon, because it lays a good foundation, an important foundation for understanding what it is that the preacher wants us to learn in this book. Uh, more importantly, what the Lord wants us to learn through what the preacher has to say. What we learned last week is that in the book of Ecclesiastes, there's 12 chapters, and in these 12 chapters, there's two different voices that we hear from. We hear from the author, and then we hear from somebody called the preacher, or some of your Bibles say the teacher, which is from the Hebrew word quaheleth, which means a, an, uh, an assembler or somebody who speaks to an assembly. So the author speaks to us in the first two verses of chapter 1, and we won't hear from the author until um, about halfway through chapter 12. I think it's verse 8, if I remember right. The rest of the time we hear from the preacher, and the preacher um, is anonymous. He doesn't introduce himself um, throughout history. Uh, it is thought, he is thought to have been Solomon. There's um, some question on that. But what we do know is that um, the preacher who is speaking here is a follower and a believer in God, Elohim. We also know that he is a very um, wise man and has experienced uh, a lot in his lifetime and is reading on the, he's, he's uh, teaching us from the backside of his life, not the, not the beginning of his life. Uh, a key word that's important to uh, understand going forward, or we're going to miss the point of the book, is used 39 times in this book. And it's the word vanity in the ESV. If you have NIV, uh, they call it meaningless. I think in the uh, um, Christian, Christian Standard Version and maybe uh, others, it's called futility. But um, the word vanity, this word uh, comes from the Hebrew word hevel, H-E-V-E-L. And uh, Hevel is a multi-purpose metaphor uh, that means uh, breath or vapor or a wisp of smoke. Um, and this word gives us the immediate insight um, into the head and heart of the preacher. Because right from the beginning, the author um, summarizes really what the preacher is going to say. He tries to summarize it in one verse, chapter 1, verse 2, where the author says this, 
Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And if you're new with us here today, you're probably going, yippee, that sounds like a real uplifting um, (laughs) uh, sermon and sermon series. Uh, But I think you're going to be really encouraged. I'll talk about that in just a little bit. But this word, hevel, or vanity, or meaningless, or futility, this word gives us immediate insight into the head and heart of the preacher. And if you would just, um, uh, this book is uh, poetry, um, as is uh, Proverbs. It's called the wisdom literature, and it's written in a poetic form. And poetry is meant to be um, felt and seen as much as it, as it is to be heard. And this word hevel um, is a beautiful metaphor. And the best way that we can picture it is to imagine yourself um, on a cold um, Midwest or um, uh, Colorado morning in January. Uh, close to zero, you step outside and you exhale, and what you see is your breath. And then what happens to what you see is that it's there for a moment, and then it's gone. That's Havel. It's it's transient. It's fleeting. It's there for a second, and then it's gone. What else do you notice about your breath on that cold morning is that it's unsubstantial. You can't grab a hold of it. Um, it's also, um, it's a paradox. It, it blows wherever it will before it j- disappears. Hevel, under the sun, vanity under the sun doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. A classic paradox or a classic example of Hevel or vanity is that is the question, uh, why does bad things happen to good people? And then the preacher starts speaking in verse 3 and asks the question that he's going to spend the rest of the book answering, and that is, is, what does a man gain by all the toil or all the effort at which he toils under the sun? And last week, he took a a stab in the introduction in in, in answering that question. And and very simply, he answers it by saying, uh, we have no ultimate control of this life, and there is no ultimate gain. In verse 4, last week, we saw that he, he said that generations go, people die, and generations come, people are born. But the earth stays the same. That nothing actually changes as people go and people come. And then he, he, um, he used a different metaphor to get to that same point in verse 7. He said, streams flow endlessly into the sea, but the sea is never full. And in verse 5, he talked about the, um, the monotony, um, uh, the routine of life, and he described it as the sun rises and the sun sets, and then it pants back or it hurries back or hastens back to where it rose, and then it does the same thing over again day in and day out. And then verse 9, he said that life is weary. And we're never quite satisfied with all the good Hevel under the sun. And then he finished on a real positive note last week as he introduced the book in verses 10 through 11. He says that we don't remember things of the past. Past generations, we forget who they are and we forget their accomplishments. And then he said future generations will forget us. They'll forget who we are, and they'll forget whatever it was that we accomplished. In the first 11 verses, the preacher showed us that there is no lasting gain this side of the sun in our human toiling. In today's passage, the preacher laments that all the wisdom and knowledge in the world comes up short in helping us understand all that is incongruent in this life under the sun. In fact, the more we know, the more we taste, the more we see of the madness and folly in this world, actually, the more grief and sorrow we're prone to experience. And if you were here last week, and you're obviously here today, Right about now, you might be ready for the preacher to make a hopeful turn in his teaching. You might be saying, surely it's about time that the preacher tells us about God. 
And it is. Zach Eswine, in his uh, commentary on the book of Ecclesiastes that he titled Recovering Eden, says this about this exact spot in the book of Ecclesiastes where we find out ourselves today. He says this, The preacher tells us about God, but not as our Redeemer. Not yet, anyways. At this moment, we're meant to consider God as one who governs and has authority over that which is under the sun. God is the one who lets or allows the gainless world to go on as it is. God is the one who does not stop having to deal with all this vanity. For these reasons, it can feel that God is like a nameless substitute teacher who gives busy work to fidgety students. We must face this fact. That God is in it, that God is allowing it, that God could stop it, and God will stop it one day. This book, um, to state the obvious, can be dark and depressing at times. And I know um, I've had a lot more time than most of you, or probably all of you, in soaking in um, this uh, amazing book called Ecclesiastes. But I want to tell you this right up front, and my prayer is that the same thing will happen to you, is that this book has caused me to worship God's, uh, worship God, <laughs> woo, uh, to worship God, big G, in ways I haven't been spurred on to worship him in years. If all that the preacher writes about wasn't true, Jesus would never had to come. If everything he has to say is true, it beckons me to release my grip on everything under the sun and hang on to the promises and hope that is found only in the one who created the sun and everything under it. Finally, and this is important, we're going to talk about it a little bit later on, finally, that it frees me up, this book frees me up to truly enjoy all of God's good gifts under the sun. God has made me, Dan Hardy, as one who takes a stand in support of the underdog. Go Los Angeles Rams. But I, I just, as I look back over my life, I've, I've been made that way. And I haven't always um, operated in wisdom, but I've operated in compassion. Um, I think about in second grade um, at Our Lady of Fatima, um, after I'm sure that I got pulled down to the principal's office by Sister Marilyn by my right earlobe. If you ever look at me uh, from the front, you're going to notice my right earlobe is a little bit longer than my left earlobe. That's thanks to Sister Marilyn. But then we went out to the recess on the pavement, um, uh, pavement playground at Our Lady of Fatima in Lakewood, Colorado. And... Uh, one of the sisters escorted a new student out to the playground. And I saw him limping uh, to a corner on the playground and stood there by himself. And little did I know is that I would get to have a, fa- I would have a fast relationship with David Jameson. You see, David Jameson had polio. I was on the uh, back end of the polio academ- epidemic in America. Uh, my generation was the last in America to have polio. And David Jamieson had it in his left leg, and he had a brace on his left leg. And as I got to know David over the years, he played in our Little League baseball team that David would have chances to get up to bat. He would get a hit. He would hobble his way down the first base. We'd put in a, a, um, in a pinch runner. I remember going to the swimming pool, a Green Mountain swimming pool, and David would have his brace off in his swim trunks, and his left leg was really just a piece of flesh. It, had, it could support nothing. So he would hop around on his right leg. And I remember, um, I remember kids coming up to him and saying, what's wrong with your leg? Kids can be um, both honest and they can be cruel at times. And I remember David Jameson saying, nothing, what's wrong with your face? And I loved, I loved that attitude. And I, would, I was really David's protector. I wouldn't let anything happen to him. High school, kind of the same way. There was Bob McFate, who was overweight, and Jade Tortell, who um, wore uh, thick glasses, and he um, was uh, a comedian. And he made jokes because of the deep pain in his life. And I remember several times um, those guys being picked on and me standing in front of them 
and telling the others to stop it. You're going to have to go through me. Um, served on the Colorado Hope Coalition for the Homeless. Um, I have a special heart for those that are treated unjustly or who are oppressed. And, and I say none of that. It's just the way God's wired me. And there's a lot of dysfunction in that uh, P.S. Um, but I've seen and I've experienced a lot over the years. And I think over the years I've become wiser as a result. I now know, for example, that I can't fix people. I can't fix anything. I can give, I can serve, I can counsel, I can pray for others, I can grieve with others, but I can't fix the problems in this vain world. Even with that, the more I see of the brokenness in this world, the more grief and sorrow I tend to experience. I think that's actually um, a sign of a um, growing, spirit-filled Christian. That if we don't look around the world and experience some level of grief and sorrow, I believe that we're not submitting ourselves to the Spirit. That we don't see people the way God sees people. When I see those I love in jail, when I see those um, who I love uh, being divorced, when I hear of suicide, when I know those who are drinking in excess, when I hear about third-term late abortion, um, and, uh, and when I hear of a proposal of House Bill 1032 in Colorado that would require um, LB, LGBT practices to be taught and presented as normal and fully acceptable behavior in all public school sex education, including um, all charter schools, and that all contraceptive methods must be taught, including those that, are, uh, that have uh, abortive methods, it grieves me and it brings me sorrow. When I travel to Nigeria and I see the hopelessness of poverty and struggle, I'm grieved and it brings me anguish. And maybe most importantly, when I see loved ones who are still enemies of their Creator, it grieves me and it brings me great sorrow. Let me ask you this. How do you make sense out of all this mad and foolish mess under the sun? How do you respond to all the vanity under the sun? How do you answer the, the question, what is the meaning of life? As we dive into our passage today in verse 12, verses 12 and 13, it says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. First of all, the preacher is saying that everything done under heaven is an unhappy business. Everything done under heaven is an unhappy business. Let that sink in just for a minute. Um, let me, uh, the New Living Translation gives it even a greater gravity. God has dealt a tragic existence to the human race. The NIV says something similar. God has laid a heavy burden on mankind. The Christian standard version doesn't, doesn't ease up and says God has given people this miserable task. It's almost as if the preacher has taken a snapshot here of the Garden of Eden where we see Adam and Eve, fig leaf clad, standing ashamed, God declaring a curse upon them and all that he made. He does say, you will live. But he also says, but from this moment on, thorns, thistles, pain, and sweat await you, Adam and Eve, and all of humanity after you. Here in, verse, uh, here in verse 13, we now get our first glimpse of both heaven and of God. And what we see is not necessarily encouraging. When the preacher uses the metaphor under heaven, it's the same as saying under the sun. What he's referring to is everything that is created on this earth. All things animate and all things inanimate. With this said, with this said, he, I believe he uses under heaven here instead of under earth purposely and intentionally to indicate that all the heaven on this earth has been allowed, or as the Bible says in verse 13, has been given to mankind by God. 
Then we see that the preacher, in his quest for meaning and truth, the preacher applied his heart to seek or inquire or investigate and search, explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. And it's important to see that he sought out answers by seeking and searching through wisdom. He's not at this point um, seeking and searching for wisdom. He is seeking and searching for answers by his own human wisdom. And this is huge because this is a place where we can all live. Where we spend time trying to figure things out and figure people out and fix people. You see, having wisdom is good and living by wisdom is good. But trying to make sense of all the vanity under the sun, all the vanity under heaven, using human wisdom is futile at best. And at worst, it'll drive you nuts. And that's actually why reason and apologetics don't save anyone. It might be helpful in understanding intelligent design or the age of the earth or even the value of life, but human wisdom can never explain the meaning of life. Only the wisdom in the person of Jesus Christ can give us the uh, ultimate answers. Steve Hawking, you may know that name. He is um, described by many as the wisest, wisest scientist of our era. And I think he died last year in 2018. But eight years before his death, he said, there is no God. And then before he died, there was a movie made about his life and legacy called The Theory of Everything. Ravi Zacharias said this. He said, Stephen Hawking never did succeed in his quest for the theory of everything. For the greatest scientist of our time, he may well have now encountered the one who knows everything. The preacher applied his heart to seek and to search out by human wisdom all that is done under under the sun. He applied his heart. When Scripture speaks about the heart, it's referring to the center of one's inner life, including the mind, the will, the emotions, um, the, the entire being, the preacher is employing all of his resources to understand the meaning of all that is done under the sun. All the pain, all the suffering, all the injustice, all the oppression in this world. What's the meaning of all of this? And this, uh, this wise preacher has lived a lot of life. He's seen a lot and he can't figure it out. And there's several paradoxes There's actually many paradoxes that he is um, trying to better understand um, in this book. And I'm going to mention three of them right now. Um, One of them is is that um, he is a self-described wise guy. Wise guy? Self-described wise guy. And um, and the the paradox there is is that he's saying that that everybody that is wise is going to meet the same fate as those who are foolish. They're going to die, and they're going to be forgotten. Listen to this, chapter 2, verses 15 through 16. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will also happen to me. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there's no enduring remembrance. Seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies, just like the fool. Then another paradox is he talks about the uh, oppressed and the powerful who are oppressing the oppressed. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. And there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still wicked. How about the classic paradox that bothers the preacher? Why do bad things happen to good people? And why do the wicked prosper? Chapter 8, verse 14. There is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. 
And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. All of his efforts to understand the universe are summed up in the phrase in verse 14, I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. All is vanity and striving after the wind. You remember what he said about the wind in verse 6. He said the wind blows to the south, it blows around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuit the wind returns. It's all vanity. The preacher is saying that in spite of all of his efforts and experience, figuring out the meaning of life was like chasing after the wind and then after you get it, trying to hold it in your hands. It's impossible. It's futile. And he gives us another metaphor. In verse 15, he says, What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. Two different metaphors. He says, All the wisdom in the world cannot straighten out this crooked world. There's always something we need or would like to bend back in the shape. Broken relationships, terminal diagnosis, a miscarriage, sinful words or anger that came out of the mouth that can't be taken back. One commentator said this, In spite of man's grandest efforts, some crooked matters will remain unstraightened. Then in the second half of verse 15, he says, What is lacking cannot be counted. The New Living Translation gives us some insight into what this means. It says, What is missing cannot be recovered. All the wisdom in the world cannot help us find what is missing. Life is like an account that refuses to balance. We know there's a deficit, but we can't quite figure out the source or the cause. And what is it that's missing in this world? What is missing for humanity under the sun is happiness, is peace, is contentment. And our greatest need, which meets all other needs, is the need to be reconciled to our Creator. Our need for salvation is our ultimate need. Blaise Pascal says it this way. What else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness? That we were created for happiness. We were created um, for relationship with our Creator, to be eternally happy in Him and His good gifts. He continues, of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace, a whole. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there to help. Let me say that again. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are. Though none can help, since this infinite abscess can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object. In other words, by God himself. Let me say it a different way. That every human being has a God-shaped hole. A place inside of our hearts that only God the Creator, made known through Jesus Christ, can fill. And if we try to put anything else in that hole to make us happy, content, joyful, and peaceful, it won't fit. It won't fill the need we have inside of our heart. And let me actually say it a different way. Is that it will work for a while. And it can work for a while. But it won't work forever. And let me give you an example. Um, Nancy's dad, my wife's dad, Norm, whom I love so much, about 10 years ago, um, he had um, some significant um, back issues. And instead of, of, of maybe um, uh, having them, uh, the, the, the medical community um, prescribing um, exercise and um, eating better and taking care of himself, what they did is they actually inserted into his back under the skin is a type of transistor with wires that are connected to his spine so that whenever he had a pain, um, somehow this would e- emit um, some kind of uh, electrical shock that actually took away the pain. And guess what? It worked. It worked for a while. 
And then three years ago, seven years after it was put in, um, he noticed that there was something that was trying to work itself out of his back. From the inside out, it was trying to work its way out um, through his skin. So he went in, and they um, um, put it back in there, put new batteries in it while they were in there, and um, closed it back up again. And it worked for a little while. And then last week, three years after it was reinserted, it starts working its way out again. And in their infinite wisdom, they say, well, maybe this isn't working. Maybe this isn't best. Let's just take the wires off the spine and remove the transistors so they closed them back up. This is, this is the same way it works that if we try to, um, to, to be ultimately happy and satisfied and joyful and content and peaceful in all the good gifts under the sun, rather than being um, ultimately receiving all that from our, our Creator, is that um, it's going it, it's, it's, uh, it's to work its way out of our body. We're going to end up back in the same place. God has given us this longing, and at some level, he's using all this vanity under the sun to increase our longing for him, the only one who can satisfy our desires. We're going to get a a glimpse into this um, next week, some of the things that we use to, um, to try to find ultimate satisfaction in. So far, the preacher's quest for meaning um, has failed. Human wisdom cannot provide the meaning of life. But he's not ready to give up yet. In verses 16 through 18, he continues his pursuit. This time it's a pursuit of more wisdom and more knowledge to try to understand all the madness and folly in this world. In verse 16, he he, he says this, I said in my heart, he talks to himself, I have acquired or amassed great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience. In other words, I've grasped wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to no wisdom and to no madness and folly. Previously, he acknowledged that he devoted himself to seeking and searching for understanding and meaning by his own wisdom, by his human wisdom. But now in frustration, he acknowledges that even though he is wiser than all the kings and leaders who came before him, he's got more, he's got a better pedigree and more degrees, and he spent his entire life acquiring wisdom and knowledge. Things still don't add up. What is the meaning of all of this? So he says, I applied my heart or I set out to know with my entire being or discover uh, to discover and experience wisdom and madness and folly. He set out to not only know wisdom, but to understand the madness and foolishness of this world. What I know isn't enough. There has to be an answer. Have you ever felt this way? I feel this way often when I think about all the madness and the foolishness in this world. When I, when I think about um, what's happening with legalized late-term third trimester abortion. When I hear of suicide. When I hear of adultery. When I hear of abuse and abandonment. When I get the text from my daughter about H.R. 1032 and all that it, that it, that it uh, includes. I think about it a lot. And can I just say this right now? Because I, I need to say it at some point. I'll say it in just a little bit. Here's what he says about this now in verse 17, second half of verse 17 and 18. He said, I perceive that this also is but striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation or grief. And he who increases Knowledge increases sorrow. The more wisdom and knowledge we acquire about all the heaven in this world, the more grief and sorrow we will experience. The deeper that that I dig into the problems, pain, and suffering in Nigeria, the more I learn about third-term abortion, the more I encounter others who are in deep pain and suffering, the more grief and sorrow I experience. Particularly when I leave God out of the equation and I try to understand it and fix it myself. The preacher discovers that he cannot make the world different from how it actually is. 
He finds actually that a lot of learning and a lot of, of searching and seeking exposes one to the complexity of life in a way that could be unbearable. The saying that ignorance is bliss, it's actually a true one. If we, the more that we um, live in our little bubble with our head um, in the ground, um, ignoring the madness and folly around us, um, it's actually, um, we don't have too many concerns. The more we know about life, the more we know about, the more we know about um, sorrow and grief. And it's, there's probably some goodness, actually, in um, not reading the newspaper and not watching the news and not listening to uh, Fox News or CNN News. It's probably, um, it's probably helpful. But at the same breath, we're created for relationship. And the more that we enter in to um, relationships in the body of Christ and the more that we make relationships with those outside the body of Christ, um, the more um, grief and madness and folly uh, we're going to see out there. Victor Frankl's best-selling book, Man's Search for Meaning, was written in 1945, and it sold over 10 million copies, which is proof that, that humanity wants answers to the Hevel in this world. This book has inspired millions of people to identify their attitude towards life. Frankel lived through the horrors of the Holocaust. He lost his entire family, and he was a prisoner in both Auschwitz and Dachau. He overcame all the madness and folly in this world and all the pain that he endured. He overcame it stoically, and he laid the foundation of a very personal type of therapy called logotherapy. I don't know a, a ton about logotherapy, it might even um, work for a period of time. But I can tell you that any type of therapy, therapy outside of, of um, faith um, in Jesus Christ, um, it's going to work its way outside the body. He says this in his book, Sometimes life is not fair. Sometimes we work to exhaustion and invest all of our time, energy, emotions, and heart. Yet fate only hands us setbacks. And can I say is that we as Christians don't believe in fate. We believe in a sovereign God. He goes on to say, every dream we have falls apart. Backing down is more logical and understandable. But when this happens, we have two options. First, to assume that we cannot change what happens to us and be prisoners of circumstance. Second, to accept that we cannot change what has happened to us, but that we can change our attitude towards it. Therefore, we must adopt a stronger, more resilient, and more positive attitude if we want to find a more hopeful, higher meaning of life. You see, um, let me say this. Um, I've read all the positive thinking books. I've read all the self-help books. I've read those leadership books. And there's threads of truth in them. And they help for a while. And they may, they may cover the pain and suppress the questions, but they give no lasting hope or happiness. That whatever positive thinking um, you ingest is going to work its way out of your, your body again and show you that it just won't satisfy. I like what Dan Allender says. Dan Allender says there is an ache in every soul. The preacher of Ecclesiastes in chapter 3 says that God has put eternity on humanity's heart. Dan Allender says there's an ache in every soul. He goes on to say, no matter how good life has been to us, we want what only heaven can provide. No matter how deeply we deny or attempt to escape our hunger for God, it can't help but haunt the narrative of our stories. We must develop the skill to hear and pursue this desire because desire reveals what the seeking heart most deeply pursues.
if there's no escape from what is under the sun, then a rescue will have to come from somewhere else. And let me say right here, I almost said it earlier, but it needs to be said. That the the more that we see in this world, the more madness and folly that we see in this world, the more we understand the brokenness of this world, when we read things like um, um, House Bill 1032 that may very well get passed in Colorado, when we read about Virginia and New York um, legalizing late-term third trimester abortion, it should cause a certain level of anger. But let me say this. It should, it should propel us to want to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to this lost and dying world. Because the people that are passing these bills and passing these laws and committing these atrocities against a holy God, they are not our enemies. They are not our enemies. If not for the grace of God, so goes me and you. We are not better than them. But we do have the antidote, the only antidote that can change this world one person at a time. And the way to stop this madness with third term, uh, uh, th- third trimester, late term abortion um, is, um, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, when those who are created, who are, um, who are uh, committing these crimes against God, when, they, um, when he gets a hold of him, them by his radical grace, it's game over. They will be transformed. They will repent. And they will be part of God's army to transform this world one, por- one person at a time by the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, God in the person of Jesus entered this gameless world. He endured its vanity and pain. And he said to his followers then, and he said to his followers now, in this world you will have tribulation. Jesus said the same thing that the preacher is saying in Ecclesiastes. The Ecclesiastes, the the preacher is lamenting that in this world there's trouble and I can't figure it out. But Jesus finished the sentence. He said, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. That I am the way, the truth, and the life. That I am the answer to every question you're asking. Jesus did not come to remove the vanity from this world, but he is standing under the sun with you and I right now in all the grief and the sorrow in this life. And he will bring us comfort and meaning and understanding. In the same time, at the same time, um, he has appointed us as the church, as the body of Christ. To live in this world. To live in the madness and the sorrow and the folly of this world. And to engage it with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not hating people. But loving them with the gospel whether they reject us or not. And as I close off here, I want to I give a reminder that we're not going to get to until the end of chapter 2. But it's a reminder that the preacher is going to give us several times throughout this book. That it's, it's easy to, to hear a message and to understand that we live in a broken world that's full of madness and folly. It's easy to understand at some level that, that, everything, um, that, that everything under the sun is vain. It's vanity. It's transient. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. It can't be controlled. There's no ultimate gain in anything under the sun. 
and then to just live a joyless um, um, life awaiting one day to be um, for Jesus to come and take us home. But I want to remind you right now that we're to enjoy all the good gifts under the sun. He says in verse 24, chapter 2, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in all of his efforts. This also I saw is from the hand of God for apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment. So brothers and sisters, let's go out today placing our hope in him who created the sun and everything under it. Finding ultimate satisfaction in him. Enjoying all the gifts below the sun. And when we encounter daily the madness and the folly of this world that brings us grief and sorrow, let's be reminded that even though um, there is tribulation in this world, that Jesus has overcome it. And he's overcome it through his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his victorious resurrection. And that he sits at the right hand of the Father. And nothing goes on down here that he doesn't see and that he doesn't care about. And let's go forward with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Standing in it firmly and proclaiming it boldly. I'm going to finish by reading Isaiah 53. And then we'll invite the the band up to close us off. But if you have your Bible with you, I'd like to actually have you open it. Or open it up on your phone or your or your tablet. It's going to be on the screen, but I want you to I want you to look at it right there where you sit. Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up like he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. This is speaking of Jesus some um, hundreds of years before Jesus was born. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation... Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Praise be to God. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession 
for the transgressors. Father, we're grateful for your living and active, abiding, transforming word. And God, thank you for this nugget, these 12 chapters of delightful truth that, um, as the preacher says, that are uh, really, they're, they're a delightful truth, but they're also like goads where they hurt and they bring us face to face with the realities in this world. That even though everything was created good and perfect in the garden, that everything you, you created perfectly and good was marred by our sin. And God, I thank you that, um, that you didn't just leave us in this uh, gainless, vain, um, mad, foolish world to be left to ourselves, but that you entered it, that you had a plan from the beginning, from the very moment that our ancestors sinned against you. There was always a plan to restore us into a right, right relationship. And God, I pray that we would live rightly, that you would, by the power of the Holy Spirit, standing firm in your word, would help us live rightly, on this vain earth, enjoying all the good gifts you've given us while finding ultimate and lasting satisfaction and hope in our risen Savior. And God, I pray that our lives are short. God, um, you describe our lives as a vapor. It's here today, gone tomorrow. God, I pray that we would be informed by the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ that has set us free from the power and the penalty of sin. God, I pray that we would be ones who run with the gospel of Jesus Christ into this world and shine and share your righteousness. And God, I pray that you would use our testimony to save many for your glory and for the sake of your church. And we pray all these things in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.